Welcome to Remix the Narrative. Remix the Narrative is a podcast that discusses the issues and topics that impact children, families, and education. Through dialogue, we discuss the good, bad, great, and ugly with the hopes to promote change. Tune in to get expert advice and tools to help the whole family. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our mental health discussion on um, stigma when it comes to mental health. And I'm so excited because we have an amazing panel and I believe that we're really going to be able to dive deep into this topic and why uh, is it really an issue and why is it something that we battle with within our own individual communities and just in our communities as a whole. And so uh, I'm excited because I actually get to be more of a panelist than a moderator for this conversation. Um, And also I will be moderating and kind of helping with the questions though. So if you have any comments or questions for our panel as we get into this discussion, please put them in the comments. I'll be displaying them and we'll talk through them throughout. Um, I'm excited because as you all know, May is mental Health Awareness Month. And so each of our panelists definitely are very active and just advocates for this work. And so I'm excited to hear the and, and things we're going to hear from them today. So at this time, I'm just going to turn it on over to Mr. Philip and he'll get us started. Hey, everybody. I'm Philip. I'm going to be moderating this panel. And first, I want to say that I'm just super excited, grateful, blessed to be moderating this because we have three awesome panelists on here with. Uh, vast experience, perspectives, and expertise in mental health. <clears throat> we, of course, have Jarima, who's a teacher and the founder of Burst Into Books. We have Dr. Obari Cartman, who's a psychologist, and we have author Ebony Lewis. So to kick things off, we're going to have an icebreaker question just to get to know everybody a little bit more. Um, and there's three parts to this icebreaker question. First is name. Second is what is your work and or passion? And then third is what is one hobby that you picked up during quarantine? <laughs> um, I can start. Uh, hello, everyone out there in Facebook world. It's so interesting. I would say, well, I'm going to start with my name, but I think that would be my hobby is all this virtual stuff. Um, I am Ebony Lewis, and I am a I'm an author of Dear Black Boy, It's Okay to Cry. I am a mental health advocate and a youth warrior, also a, a mom and a wife. And I would say helping people, especially our youth, is my passion. And as far as one hobby that I've picked up, I think it is, you know, virtual, virtual stuff. Just like, you know, I, I work for the Boys and Girls Club by day, so I do a lot of virtual programming. So just learning all of these platforms, zooming, I would say, is the hobby that I picked up. I don't know how I'm like a Zoom master now. Love hate relationship for me. <laughs> That is my hobby outside of cooking three meals a day, every day, all day. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your favorite thing to cook? Breakfast. Breakfast? Anything breakfast. <laughs> French toast, breakfast food. I love cooking breakfast. Yeah, your breakfast is my favorite, too. <laughs> hey, thanks for sharing, everybody. Thank you. Uh, what can I say? So I'm Jareen McGorm. I'm uh, the founder of Bursts of Books. I'm also a mother, an educator. Um, just advocating for youth. And so what would I say has been my hobby during this time? It's actually like finding Netflix series. I don't watch TV at all, actually. Before the quarantine, like I literally 
didn't know anything about anything on TV. And so it's been interesting. Me and my son, we started watching the series Black Lightning. So that's yeah. been our, our thing every night. We watch one of those episodes. And so that's been exciting to be able to uh, I, I'm a big movies person going out to the movies, but this has been cool, like having a series and something to look forward to every night. So that's been my hobby, I guess, getting into series and, and those things. Dr. Carmen? Um, hey, everybody. My name is Obari. I, um, I, my work is centered around mental health and culture and uh, arts and wellness in lots of different ways. I focus a lot of my work on uh, black men in particular. Um, I'm also a father of two beautiful black boys and a writer and a drummer and a photographer. So uh, I, I love the question about your work and then your passion. And I feel like one of the things that's gotten really um, powerful and instructive for me as I've gotten in my older age that these things are merging in ways that were not true. I used to think about more compartments in my day. I would be a drummer one day and a therapist another day and a teacher another day and a writer. Like, but but now all of it is mixing in ways that's really, really cool. And so uh, my art and my passion and my work are all the same thing in ways that weren't true a couple of years ago. So um, that's a really cool sort of revelation and, and thing that I've learned the, the, the more I, I think about how to answer questions like that. Um, I haven't picked up any like cool new hobbies. I have rediscovered simple things that in my mind before mm. I didn't have time for, uh, like taking walks. I take it. I take a walk every day, and before I would have been, I would have thought that I did not have time to take exactly. a walk. Mm -hmm. like, what is that? That I have as much time as I've always had, but now I'm prioritizing. You know, just breathing and exercising and eating better. Part of my my health has been reclaiming my own sense of like power to combat the anxiety of the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So instead of waiting for the, the scientists to come up with a vaccine, I know in the meantime, if I eat better foods, then my personal immune system and my, my family's immune system is better. And I'm, that comforts me. So um, I've just been enjoying taking care of my body better and been more attentive to the things that my body needs and not just rushing and putting that in the back burner. And years later, it's been on my to-do list. You know, so my, my, my New Year's resolution is to eat better for years. But now just thinking about the importance of that, um, as I, I wouldn't call it a hobby, but just a redirection of my time, priorities and focus. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that, um, especially because I'm sure, as you know, um, Dr. Cartman, that, you know, with a healthy immune system and good mental health, then it can help fight off um, you know, stresses and diseases. Um, a lot of interesting yeah. research in that work. But onto the second question, I'd love to learn a little bit more about y'all's story. Um, how did you get to the work that you do? Um, was there like a, a moment that where you decided, I wanna support mental health in our youth for the rest of my lives? Mm. Um, for me, yeah. So, um, so by day um, and just since I was a youth, I would say I've worked with youth. Um, I started pretty young, like teaching, um, and I was, uh, I actually went to school in Chicago. I graduated from Columbia College, Chicago, um, and while I was there, when I was 19, I got a job working with freshmen at a school teaching journalism, which is what I majored in, so my passion for youth has always been there, um, and then when it comes to mental health, 
I grew up in a household where I had uh, parents who battled with mental illnesses and a father, my father, um, whose story I've been very vocal about. Um, he was diagnosed with bipolar and, you know, growing up, I didn't know what was going on. I just thought my dad was crazy, a drug addict, you know, had different things going on. I didn't know the name and what it was. And um, when my when I was about 25, my father had a stroke, um, a suicide attempt. Um, which you know led me to want to learn more. But it was at that moment that I was like, okay, like something more is going on. And until I educate myself and get knowledge, you know, I can't educate anyone else around me and help others. And so that's when I started getting that education and knowledge. And that's really when my my passion and my love for mental health awareness, but really still for youth grew. Um, and then three, now four years ago, um, I lost a cousin to suicide. And that's when I started, which started as kind of just like a love letter to my father, to my cousin, to my husband and my two black boys. Um, and then it grew into something more. And so I think that that is the, the you know, the small version um, of my story, but ultimately, you know, I've always loved working with you by day. I work at the Boys and Girls Club. So that is my life. And the mental health work just comes because I see what they're battling with. I know what I went through as a child. I have my own mental health struggle that I've experienced. I just gave birth eight months ago. Postpartum anxiety is real. We talk about it as much as we talk about postpartum depression. Um, but it's real. And now kind of make with the eight month, you know, just all of those things. I would say that is is my journey and how I got to where I'm at. Mm. That's good. I appreciate you sharing that so transparently. I know I'm not the moderator, but I'll share a little bit about my story also. I um ever since I remember, I've always been into people kinds of stuff. And as I've grown older, the shape of it and the, the label for it changes. When I was in junior high, middle school, I was a peer mediator. Like I've always been into that kind of thing. I was always into clubs. In high school, we did retreats and I was a part of this club called Fusion where we talked about race and the art. And um, I've always been inter interested in how people work and with how they think. And I've always been like really curious slash nosy, what it, you know, call it what you want. But I've, I've always been that kind of a person. And I didn't know what the profession that matched that that curiosity or the, that personality was, but the trajectory has always been there. And I still, as a you know full-grown adult with a PhD in psychology, still don't know what the work looks like. But the theme has always been wanting to connect with people, wanting to. And I, I would have said at a certain part of my life that the psychology interest had more to do with learning about other people and. What I discovered, the, the more I really reflect on it, was it's, it's really been more about learning more about myself and using that self-discovery and understanding to connect with people and in and, and the ways that they converge and don't. Um, so my work is very, I'm very transparent in my work, which is why I appreciate uh, the way sisters are sharing like that. I, um, I, I don't, I don't, I, I struggle with like expertise kinds of stuff. I don't do the just grandstanding and the posturing. I'm very much about just getting down dirty, eye to eye, level to level with people, and us together figuring out how to solve problems and be better and grow and change. And that, and that starts with, from me, and extends to whoever, you know, wants to join that process. But whether it called, I called it therapy or psychology or whatever it's called, that theme has been following me for, for, the, for, for my whole life. 
I would say similar for me. Um, I've always been a teacher. Like I've always been the one who loves to help people. And even I would say within my circle of friends, I'm usually like the one that people will come for advice or um, I just get pleasure out of helping others. And that's just always been a thing of mine. Um, I would say my journey of understanding my role when it comes to mental health has been in phases, right? Because I think I'm just naturally that type of person. But understanding how you truly help people is something I have grown to learn over time. Um, I had a really great friend in college who um, said something to me who has stuck with me to this day, that everyone has a story and that it's important that when we are calling ourselves helping others, that we are allowing people to first share their stories right. instead of us prescribing and me like right. assuming I know what you need. Right. And so right. I think that's similar in mental health, along with in the classroom as a teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. I always live by that, that I, I know my students first before I can teach them. Right. And then the better mm -hmm. I know them, the better I know how to connect with them and I can bring material that's relevant. Um, same thing with parents. I feel like I've always just been able to listen first. Like I'm not assuming why you're not doing something. And so I think that for me, I've just realized that maybe kind of similar to Obari, not in these technical terms, have I lived out the mental health uh, world, but I just think it's important that we allow people to share their stories. And when people feel safe in order to do that, you'll see them do things that you assume they couldn't do, right? <laughs> it's like, and if, and if they aren't doing something, you can understand why and you could be a, a supporter and helping them to do better. And so um, I think that's my role is to listen to people's stories and create programming and resources and things that can help them be like doper versions of themselves. I love that. That's super powerful, especially setting high expectations for the people that we care about and helping them reach those expectations. That's just super on point. I want to thank everyone for sharing your story. And I love the diversity of the story, but also some of the similar connections that I'm seeing between everyone's story, where you each had an introspective element that brought you to what you're doing today, whether you're Cartman wanting to connect with people um, and by doing that, by learning about yourself or Ebony with your just like lifelong desire of helping youth and then also building in your personal experiences to do that. Um, so we're gonna transition into our theme of today's conversation, which is stigma and mental health. So stigma and mental health, super duper important. You can't really think about mental health without thinking about the stigma that comes with it. Um, we can think about the youth who might feel like it's difficult to talk to their parents or their friends or their teachers because of that stigma. Um, recently, I learned that in some states for physicians to get their MD license, they have to fill out a form, the form asks them if they've ever had, um, seen a psychiatrist or taken any antidepressants. And if they mark yes, then there is a additional review as to whether this person can get his MD. Hey there. <laughs> but we can see that stigma exists on a lot of different levels, personal level, social level, professional level. And so I'd like to start off our conversation by asking y'all, what is stigma? What does it mean to you? Why does stigma matter? Hmm. Um, I would, I, I don't know if there, I feel like we have like a little circle going on. <laughs> it's like, like, okay. Um, but, um, so, so my version, I, I like how you ask the question, like, what is your version of stigma? Um, I would say stigma is, I've always looked at it as like a barrier, 
right? The barrier between what my story, what I've been through, what I'm going through and understanding it fully and understanding it in a sense of getting the proper help that I need or getting the resources that I need. And so if I just talk about my own personal life, you know, I talk about my father who battled, you know, bipolar disorder. I did not know what that was because there was a stigma in my family that that wasn't something you talked about. You didn't talk about mental health. You didn't talk about what was wrong or what was going on because one, we really didn't understand it. And two, it was just a part of our story that we were just living life and life was just happening. And so that's what it was. It wasn't, oh, you know, this is what it is. And this is, this is the help he needs. It was just, oh, dad is going through some stuff. End of story. Um, and I think from that, you know, there are so many other stigmas that have grown um, in our communities, you know, of especially people of color, you know, like what happens in this house stays in this house, working with youth. You know, I work with youth. I know so many of the youth that I work with that are going through things, but not all of them are just coming to me openly sharing it because that could get them in trouble and they still have to go home to their parents. And, they, you know, and so I think a lot of that is what stigma is, right? Stigma is this barrier that exists um, that has created this negative version of what mental health is, right? Mental health is negative. Health is health, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, like health. Having good health and bad health is all about how we take care of those, of that, of those health, right? And so stigma, I think, stands in that way. Um, and I think that's why it matters because until we understand stigma, until we work to break those barriers, we won't advance in the ways that we need to when it comes to mental health, when it comes to support and resources for our community. Because as long as those stigmas exist, people just won't want to talk about it or hear about it or do what they need to do to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Are we going in a circle, Manuel? Are we still doing this clockwise? <laughs> we gonna, after this, so far, we're going to break the circle. So we're going to break it. <laughs> I'm going to speak to the stigma idea from a, a little bit of a different perspective. I have another angle that um, I think is important just to be a part of the conversation. And for me, it, it, part of it's always reinforced from the style of, and the approach to the work that I do. I, I spend a lot of time in high schools doing therapy with uh, black boys. And what I do is I go into a school and I'm always assigned to like the, the, the contract is give me the students that are difficult, that are having behavior problems, that are getting suspended. Um, and that's I go in there, I get that list. I have a program also in the juvenile detention center. Um, so like those the, the, the population that I'm most comfortable with in the therapeutic context is the boy that people think is unreachable. And over and over again for years and years, my job is to walk into a school, someone sends me a boy into a room, I'm a complete stranger, and I sit down, I don't have anything to offer them, I don't have any games, I don't have any scholarships, I'm not saying we're going to get pizza later. All I have is a person in the room that says, um, this is optional, uh, you'll put on the list, and if you would like to sit and talk, I'm here for that. No one has ever said no to me. No boy has ever said, no, nah, I don't really feel like the, the, the idea of the stigma has never interrupted a conversation between me, man to man, man to woman, in a conversation where I'm offering space to just be honest and open and share and learn 
I'm clear about who I am and what I'm here for. There's never no tricks. It's always wide open. Everybody's open to that. The more I do that, the more I feel like if we had, if they had opportunities to go to therapy, most young people would do it. Um, the idea of the stigma, though, I think has to do in a almost a more healthy, protective way with a resistance to the healthcare system as we've been presented it. Mm. Uh, I'm seeing more conversations these days about like why Bill Gates is involved in the vaccine conversation at all. I'm saying uh, Chicago's preparing to make mandatory vaccines. I, the black people in my circles are nervous about that. I think that the, the Tuskegee experiment yep. memory are very close in our heart. And so because there's this, in, this already this sort of almost a shame of being black and, and, and disenfranchised, dis, dis, disenfranchised and um, particularly the black men that I work with, there's a heightened, even this week, there's this heightened sense that like black men are under attack, we're getting hunted. Uh, the Georgia case, there was another case of a, a brother got uh, killed by police on Facebook Live. There's the sense that in our bodies, we are already a threat or broken or criminals or wrong. And when we encounter a help seeker, so uh, we, we, we already have this, this shame we carry. Then I go to a therapist's office and because the system is designed to have to sustain itself, uh, I'm required by the insurance policies from the very first moment I sit down with you to listen to your story, listening for the things that are wrong enough to find a diagnosis to justify my insurance continue to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I'm required to label you and label the deficiencies specifically. And I believe there's some, it might not even unspoken, but some natural healthy resistance to that process. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the other things that I'm finding, particularly with black men again, um, in this moment when we're angry, my job as a therapist is to help you manage and resolve that anger. So I got men that are angry that a black man is lynched in Georgia. And then if they want to come to me, I'm trying to help them breathe and, and make better decisions and to do yoga and to relieve that anger. But I think there's some a dissatisfaction with the idea that my therapy is intended to make you feel better in a moment when there's this angst that we want to do something else with than cope or manage or, or resolve it. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want something else. I'm, it doesn't make me feel good that they got arrested just because the video surfaced. That's, that doesn't, that's, that's not comforting to my spirit because I know that there's a cycle that's going to continue even if I get lulled to sleep, even if I get sedated, if I take medication or therapy, whatever it is that makes me feel better, that would not do anything to the system that perpetuates these injustices to protect my sons right now. And I think the way therapy, I think there's fundamental problems with the, the model that we all learn in school, to get the licenses, to get the degrees. We learn a certain perspective and a framework that I think is unhealthy in, in ways that the stigma is necessary for. And because of that, I think it's the professionals, the healthcare workers, the advocates to adjust the way we do therapy, the way we approach people, to not wait for them to be more comfortable for the stigma to go away, but to, uh, to, to revise our, our approach. So I spend a lot of time thinking about what does it mean to get black men to come to therapy. And, and for me, that doesn't look like putting flyers out that says, hey, guys, come talk about your feelings and support each other because they won't come for that. Mm -hmm. So we do. I use African drums as a hook. I use hip hop as a hook. I go into a school and I will just play music, sometimes just for a whole hour to play music. I won't ask them what, they, what they've been through. I won't ask them to be vulnerable. I won't ask them to strip down the, the things that they've used to protect themselves. And now I'm a stranger and I'm saying, hey, I don't have nothing to offer you, but can you just reveal yourself to me? Mm -hmm. No, we'll just listen to music and talk. Because I really, the truth is, I don't necessarily have the answers for this, but I do know that collectively we can come together and figure out a way to do this better. 
and it does not necessarily always mean you're feeling better. You might feel worse towards the path towards the liberation if that's what we're intended for. Um, and I think that particularly the, the black people that I that I'm in circles with have some sense that the therapeutic model that 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 they would encounter in my office if I was going by the book would not serve the purpose that they really in, un, underneath all of it are, are, are seeking. So I think that stigma is real, and I think that sometimes it, it protects us. Yeah. Only thing, only thing I would add is that I, similar to what he just said, I believe that is it really a stigma? I believe that people know that the more labels or things that I'm put on me can alter the way you view my abilities. And so what I mean by that is, for example, um, it's a real thing. I think now it's becoming more like, oh, like self-care, therapy, you know, but there is just a real thing to say, like, I have a therapist, right? I think about it's a real thing, I think, in our community, and I know we're kind of going there to even for like the students I serve to say they have an IEP, right? Yeah. To say they have all these different labels, automatically that label starts making some narrative of you, of who I am in your mind, right? So, okay, so he... He, he or she goes to therapy. So what is wrong with them? Or, you know, or she, you know, automatically, you know, you have an IEP, let me lower the standard, you know, and I, and I think it's just real things that we know that regardless of how sexy we make the program or how uh, beneficial we can say it is, I know that there is something that comes along with that statement or that label put on me. And so I think these kind of conversations are important because the more we normalize these kind of conversations, it becomes just as simple as saying like, oh, did you get a new, you know, I'm, I just think that we just don't make it comfortable to be someone who admits that, you know what, I have some things that, that bother me. You know what I mean? I think that we are taught in many ways to just kind of suck it up or, you know, on with it. Cause guess what? It, that's just going to be another scar of weakness put on you. Right. And so you don't want to have that label. And so, um, why does it matter? Um, I've learned personally for myself that those same kind of scars that have hurt me in my past, when I didn't address them, they actually end up crippling me in, in many ways. And as I've gotten older and I have embraced therapy and I've embraced being vulnerable with my circle, I'm able to kind of what Obara saying, like get that village mentality, like, hey, I don't have the answers, but guess what? It's very healing to share something with somebody, right? Versus me to act like I'm okay. Um, and similar to what Ebony said, like in, in my family, I have those same um, skeletons in our closets. I mean, people in my family who have battled with quite a few things, and instead of our family making that known, we've just tried to cover it. So it could be like, okay, we're good, but ultimately, if we don't really address those issues, we kind of repeat a lot of the same cycle. So um, I think we just know it's real that if I say I have some, I need help, you may look at me as a weaker, weaker person. Yeah, especially with the talking on the labels, um, it reminds me of an experiment that was conducted um, where they got a group of boys and, and a group of girls and they had them take a math test. And when they took the math test, they didn't tell the, you know, the two groups anything before they took the test. And the boys and the girls scored about the same. Mm -hmm. Then they had another group of boys and another group of girls. But this time they told them the, you know, the widely um, talked about um, rumor that, um, or myth rather, that boys are better than girls in math. Right. And told the, the group of boys that, and they told the group of girls that, and then, when they're looking at the scores, the girls who were told that girls do worse in math had lower math scores. 
Mm-hmm. And so that shows that even just by placing a label, it can cause real damages to people's thinking. So I, I definitely want to highlight and you know, just reemphasize what you guys have been bringing up about the importance of labels and the stigmas and the harms that's associated with the labels. Um, and using yeah, when people are experiencing something, um, particularly education, there's so much struggling with like work, and then they finally get tested, and then finally get someone to say, "No, you get dyslexic." Sometimes people get a relief from the label because they're experiencing something they can't put a finger to. Uh, I think that the adjustment has to be that we understand even the labels or the diagnoses not as um, as like permanent aspects of, of a person's self. Uh, if we were to say, I'm being visited by, by, by depression for a moment, which is a very different thing than I am depressed. Because now I'm, now I'm a criminal, I'm degenerate, I'm lazy, and now I have to add I am depressed as a, as a being statement. It, it's, it's harder than saying uh, people get visited by depression sometimes. People get visited by anxiety. It comes and goes like a cloud that flows, you got to deal with it, and then, and then it goes away. Um, I think even if we use labels that can sometimes help comfort people by identifying a, a category of combinations of things that other people have experienced, that we still need to use that label, that description, in a way that does not speak to uh, a deficiency or, or spark the same sort of trigger of, of, of shame and embarrassment because I'm, I'm, I'm wrong and broken deep down on the inside. And I would add to that, too. Uh, I love like throwing that idea of labels in there. Um, But just that idea, I I recently, not recently, but had someone share, you know, I think that's why education is so important. The the label and like stigma is not necessarily always bad. I love uh, Dr. Obari, how you mentioned like a lot of it is protective factors. And so it's not just like, oh, you know, going to the doctor is wrong. Like there are real things that have happened or there are real misdiagnoses that happen when we take young black boys to the doctor and all of a sudden everybody has ADHD or, you know, like there are these real misdiagnoses. So that's really important. But I think, you know, one of the things that happens with a lot of labels, especially when it comes to mental health, is if I don't know what this is and then you give me this label, well, now the issue is I have this label and I don't know what to do with it. So I want um, heard, you know, someone stand up and talk about all the things that they have been experiencing in their home, you know, um, an alcoholic parent, just, you know, all these different things that they were experiencing. And it was once someone looked at them and told them, oh, you're going, you know, you have anxiety or you have bipolar. That's when it made it worse for them because they didn't understand what that meant. They felt like, well, because I had that now, I have to act like I, have. you know, like th- that, that has a, a look to it, right? Because I had this now, I have to play to that so that, you know, with the how when we give labels, then all of a sudden this becomes like what combines me. I think that's the 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 barrier, I think a lot is in the lack of education around what that means and the lack of culturally relevant resources yeah. um, that can ensure folks get what they need because for being honest, all of us are experiencing something, you know, saying, you know, I'm visited by depression or is that like there's a pandemic right now. Everybody has right, 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 right. something, whether it's their job, right. graduating, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing. It's a protective thing, right? We're 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 protective by nature, but it's understanding what that looks like, how to control it, how to you know, like that's where I think the education part comes in. And so I think you know that's why these conversations are so important. But but I think you know ultimately those labels, depending on how they're used. Mm-hmm. Um, affect a lot. 
True. So beating the stigma involves um, beating ignorance. It involves educating the public and revisiting what the labels actually mean, not as a negative thing, but as a, as a positive thing or a protective thing. Yeah. Um, and that's a perfect segue into our next topic, which is what does stigma look like in our communities? And I wanted to bring up a really interesting um, statistic I read the other day that found that these authors, they looked at a bunch of movies um, that featured a schizophrenic person. And they found that in those movies, over 33% of the schizophrenics were angry or aggressive or violent or murderous. But in reality, schizophrenics, um, it's not nearly that high of a percent that it's violent. And so that kind of shows that in our communities, there's this reflection or this thought or this label that schizophrenics are violent. Um, and I want to pose the question to y'all, what do you think is the most important issue about stigma in our communities, in your communities? I know you guys touched a little bit on this with um, black boys or in the Chicago community, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about in your community, what is the most important issue regarding stigma or mental health? Mm, wow. I'm like, I don't want to say anything first because we break in a circle. Remember? You can't say nothing, Evan. You can't say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I've been talking a lot. So. I know, I'll say. Um, so it's so many things, Philip. Uh I guess what so in general, just kind of like this topic, what is the biggest issue with stigma in our own community? Um I think the biggest issue that I encounter is like people knowing like where they can truly get real help. Um, I don't think that people don't want to get help. I don't think that people are, you know, not aware. Like, like Ebony said, like I'm something isn't right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't feel uh, right. But I also know that I've had conversations with people in my own circle or just like with the families I work with of like, okay, lack of access. Right. So, some of the reason why I haven't gotten help is just because I can't afford that help. I don't know where that help is. Um, I think part of the issues in our community, I think that, I think it is a real thing that we, in in the black community, we can feel like, okay, don't go to a therapist, you know, all these other reasons. But I also think it's just as the opposite is true that there are many people who want help, but they also just don't know where to get that help. And also someone who's truly gonna help me as a person and not already had a diagnosis when I walked into the room, right? Like you already assume when I walk into the space that, oh, you, you must have, you must come from a single parent home. You must have, you know, all these different other things that come behind it. Like, are you really just going to listen to my story? So I think part of the stigma I believe in our community is that I, more than not, especially with the high schools that I work with, they they want to be heard. Like they want help. I think for many of them, it's like lack of access. If my mom or dad don't take me, like how can I just go as a teen somewhere to get help? Um, what if the people around me don't find it to be important? Like, is there resources available for me? And so um, I think that that's one of the things just do we have enough resources in our community? And that's why I even want these platforms. I think it's, it'll educate me because the more we know about those things, I can say this to other people in my circle. Like, hey, there is this available. But I think that the real thing is just, is there really resources in our community? Like people can make it seem like people don't want to go, but actually there, is it readily available for them to go to? I think is one of the things I, that came to the top of mind. 
Yeah, I think uh, for me, some of some of the things that come to mind kind of off of that um, is uh, so I, it makes me think of this quote um, that I once heard that said, you know, she doesn't need self-care. She needs community care. Um, you know, like we talk about like self-care, this buzzword, right? Like if I knew how to take care of myself, if I knew how to deal with what I do, <laughs> right? like none of us wants to, you know, it's that idea that when we go out into our community and a lot of times in communities where the resources are needed, they don't exist or they aren't culturally relevant, right? Like, you know, people that are coming into your schools that are working with you don't look like me, don't look like us, unfortunately, especially here if I'm speaking about where I'm from, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, like a lot of our schools, like we don't have a lot of black educators or black folks in, you know, in the uh, psychology and, you know, therapy, like we don't have that even in our schools. And so I think a lot of times it's that lack of culturally culturally relevant support. Um, I have friends, a friend of mine, like that we would work out together and it's like, this is like therapy for me, right? We're sitting here talking, but she was, we were both very strong about the fact that when we sought therapy, we wanted, you know, a person of color because there are certain things that I've been through, you know, waking up and seeing, you know, a modern day lynching happen. I don't feel like you can understand that if you don't if you haven't been through what I've been through. And so I think a lot of that, that lack of the cultural part of it is is what I think created so much stigma um, around mental health. But I also think, um, you know, like to, to Jarema's point of like people want help. I think like we have to get that out of, of our minds. And also to the point, I think uh, Dr. Abari said something earlier, you know, we need to validate that it's a lot of mess going, like it's a lot of stuff going on. And just because I help, I loved how you said, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna feel better afterwards. Like, and, and I think often we try to create, like you said, this very cutter system of like, you come and sit on this couch and you talk to me and you are diagnosed with this and now you go home and you feel better, like this magic potion. And that's just not the case. It's, it's every day, something new, you know, and so we have to really figure out how do we have these conversations and talk about things to where people understand what's happening and then they validate it. One of my favorite things, and I think that it's a part of even my book, is that idea to feel the feel. I'm not here to take away what I'm not here to make it feel better. Like I can't, I, when I work with youth and it hurt, like I, I hurt when I have to tell them like life is gonna hurt. Right. I can't say something to magically not make it hurt. And I think when we're honest about that and when our when we from a professional sense look at you know therapy or look at mental health support in that way of support versus like finding these fixes and these magical potions and you know, like then I think we can make lots of advances when we really allow people to feel how they feel, validate their feelings, and then figure out how do I support you through that. Because I can't necessarily help you get over it. Mm. You dealing with 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 generational trauma, I can't take away generational trauma. I can't get. I can't help me get over it. Watching what's going on currently today, and you know everybody posting today. You know, uh, I the, I run with my. You know, like all of those things. I, that's real happening right now. That makes me angry. It's okay for me to be angry, but I think we have to validate that. And I think that validation is really, really important when it comes to why our communities look the way they do is because for so long, 
we've told people just to be strong, to keep going, to figure it out. And we haven't really offered them authentic support that allows them to feel what they're going through and then learn how to get, get through it and feel through it versus just kind of get over it. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's good. Um, the question again was about the biggest problem of stigma, stigma in my communities. Um, and when I think about my communities, I first think about just black men as a community. And um, just piggybacking on on really the work that Ebony is doing through the, the book and reframing for men, what does it mean to cry? Uh, I think the stigma and the lack of ability for men to gather and share and be, uh, we stand vulnerable these days, but I really think it's really more about being honest. And, mm. and I, don't use, I, don't, I don't use vulnerable for that reason. Like I, I'm very careful about my language. I don't use words like afraid, even though fear is a thing. I, I use anxiety instead, right? Because um, there's, there's male ego and all that's fine. I'll, you, know, you do the dance, but if it's effective and it's to get people having conversations, we have to, I think, make those adjustments. And with that in mind, um, when I think about what it means for men to gather in spaces to be more honest or, you know, or called vulnerable, I think the, the problem with the barriers to doing that leads to um, the, the mismanagement of grief and uh, shame and sadness. And for men, those the, the multitude of human emotions that we all experience being funneled just through anger uh, because they didn't read Ebony's book and get permission to cry, or they got too old to think that I can still cry now that I'm in high school, then, you know, they're experiencing the sadness. Uh, they're, they're grieving because they're, they're losing families with a, a worldwide pandemic of, of fear and, and, and grief. But now we got the boys that are just able to show anger in response to that. And we talk about the angry black women syndrome. We say women are emotional. But when men get emotional, people get hurt. And so the problem with the stigma is that without spaces for men to be honest and develop emotional intelligence and have more insight and reflection and just be human beings together instead of sort of posturing and, and pretending and, and, and you know pumping our chest, instead, instead of doing that, if we had spaces without less stigma, with more uh, comfortable, with more normalized honesty, then I think that we would see a reduction in some of the violence into community violence, uh, intimate partner violence, self-inflicted harm, uh, addiction. I think that these are all responses in men to not being able to express themselves honestly. Because mm-hmm. it's the honest thing, people get sad, life is tough. You get bumps and bruises, it's hard. And sometimes you wanna cry, you might not actually cry, but if you're gonna write in journals, or if you're gonna cry in the car, whatever it is that you gotta do, it's in response to this very natural, normal thing that life is tough. And that anger is not always the response to that. And because of that, because of that, the stigma that keeps men from being able to just say that very basic thing and share that, um, the consequences, I think, in, our, in the communities that I'm in are several, many-fold. Yeah. Um, Philip, I want to just bring up some of the things that are in the comments and just kind of share like how this conversation organically came to be. So last Friday, we had a conversation, me, myself, and um, Damien and Philip, and we just talked about why me- mental health matters. And I found it very, and I'm just going to be transparent here, like it was very helpful for me to hear your story, Philip, because I think that we even have our stigmas about like how other communities deal with mental health, right? And so for me, I know how I feel about it and I know how my people feel about it, but just even hearing your story. And so uh, one of the people in the comments of Kevin, he just said, hey, as a 
I feel as a children of immigrants, my parents don't understand that depression is not just something that you can just get over. And also that seeking help and therapy wasn't really available to us. And so I just remember you just kind of sharing a little bit of your story last week as in even you doing this role of mental health, your parents are like, what the heck are you doing? (laughs) Right? Like be a real doctor, right? <laughs> so right. I think just that idea, uh, so I would just love, because I just see this conversation happening here. Can you share just a, like, a, what is it like in, we're talking about like our communities, like what would you share would be the case within like Asian culture? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Jerima. Um, when I saw that conversation too, uh, <laughs> I think that comment, like my my heart tightened a little bit because of how, how real it is. Mm. So one thing that I shared last week is that in Asian culture, or specifically Chinese culture, mental illness isn't a thing. It doesn't exist. If you have depression, that means you weren't eating right. If you have anxiety, that means um, you didn't sleep well. If you have schizophrenia, that means there's something wrong with your liver, right? There's this very somatic association with health disorders so that for a lot of first-generation Asian Americans who come to America and they go through a mental health problem, mental health crisis, and they tell their parents about it, someone that they, um, you know, love and trust, but their parents just don't get it. And we can't really blame the parents either because that was their upbringing. That's how they were grown up in Asia. And that's, you know, the narrative they were told, but it creates this, this struggle between the parent and the child where the child doesn't feel supported and the parent is confused, and doesn't know what's going on. And so I think what Ebony, um, brought up earlier about having culturally relevant materials and resources. And there's one phrase that I, I wrote down that I really like this authentic support, right? If we had other yellow people um, who are therapists or counselors or teachers that could guide these immigrant children and when they're going through a struggle to tell them that it's okay, it's okay to cry, it's okay that you have depression. I think that would be really powerful. Um, and one last thing I wanna bring up uh, regarding this, that. It really made my passion for cultural mental health more more public was when I was living in California. I was in school there um, in the Silicon Valley. And um, for those who don't know, in, in that area, the schools, the high schools are incredibly competitive. And my first year there, there was a string of suicides at one of the high schools. I think it was five. And every one of those suicides was an Asian child. And it kind of shown to me that, you know, even in California where there's a larger Asian population, they still don't feel like they're being heard or that there is a better solution than to, you know, suicide and to end their life. And that really kind of lit a fire within me that there, there has to be a solution, right? There has to be a way. Um, and really thinking back to like authentic support that you brought up, Ebony. And I think that's a great transition into um, the last topic of our conversation is how do we beat stigma? How do we beat um, this this label? And I know we talked about you know uh, education and we talked about a bunch of different things like um, learning to love yourself and um, being honest with yourself. But I'd love to hear from each of y'all what this is kind of a specific question, but what would you tell someone, whether it's a child or adult, that's facing mental health challenges right now, but doesn't want to do anything because of the stigma? What would you tell them if you had like a one-on-one conversation with them? 
So we broke the cycle last time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> say, say it um, one more time, Philip, for me, please. The, the last piece. Um, if you were in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody, whether it's a child or adult, you can choose, and they're going through a mental health struggle right now, um, but they're afraid to do anything of it because of the stigma, what would you tell them? Mm. So I think for me, I mean, I would, I mean, first, I think it's all like validation is so, is so real for me, right? And, you know, you can think of the times that we live in and, you know, not unfortunately, because I guess it's fortunate in today's world that we're very social, but when it comes to youth, youth, I mean, validation is everything. We live in a world where people like everything we do, where they comment on everything we do, so being validated. And I feel like when we, when we validate that what people are feeling is is real and it's okay, it opens spaces for honesty, right? I love that idea of like shifting some of the words we use because you know vulnerability, right? Like, um, and I think that you know that's what I would say. I mean, I, I could be cliche and say I would read my book. Um, I think there are lots of things that exist in there that came from a very authentic space for myself where I recognize, you know, I think uh, Dr. Obari touched on earlier, where, you know, we have to just allow people to be human. Feeling emotion is human. One of my favorite kid movies is Inside Out, um, you know, because it, it it's that clear, authentic version of like, you know, when I gave birth to my son, he came out and the first thing he did was cry. He's eight months now and the way that he communicates most of his needs is through crying, is through, you know, even now he's getting more vocal now, but there's still this sense of like, when you don't meet my need or when I don't have what I want, this is how I to take that away from him and tell him somehow by the time he's five that that's not okay because that's not manly or, you know, whatever it is, is to now take everything that he knew as being normal and as human. And, and I think that's what happens so often is like we then start to kind of shift the narrative for, for people, for boys, especially boys of color. Um, so I think I would just, you know, validate like what you feel is okay. And, and, and to that point of even, you know, the, the, the you know, speaking of your culture, uh, Philip, and just kind of some of the things that exist, that idea that we're not here to help you get over things. Like, you know, I think that that's when we learn that it's about getting through things, it's about dealing with things, but, but some of this stuff we're not going to get over. I can't just make what happened to you disappear what happened happened and it's valid and you have to feel what you need to feel you have to like all of that is real and once you do those things then we can start to do the necessary work then we can be authentic in our support um so i think that's what i would say is just like really validating how they feel and allowing them that space and and letting them know like it's not some some i'm not here for some like magic one plus one kind of equals two thing like this isn't mathematics this isn't it's very intricate, it's very, you know, but we have to really get to that point where we're validating people and how they feel and we're giving them the platforms to really feel what they feel and, and, and get through it. I was gonna say, I, I will just share just how personally, how it's helped me and those around me. And I just think it's important that um, on the same vein of like sharing 
like changing what we envision therapy and even the word. I just I just look at it as like healing, right? And so I think that none of us want to be in long-term pain, um, whatever that means. And so for me, I feel as if just sharing my story as far as like getting therapy, whether things were horrific or things are great. Like it's just about having the tools for myself that when I'm in a space, I know what to go to, right? And so before I may have been angry and feel, you know, whatever. And But now because I've done some of that self-work and got some of those tools, whether I'm by myself or with others, I have something I can go back to as a resource for myself. You know, I think the biggest thing is that um, it's just that state of like going through something and feeling helpless, right? Like I'm just, I just feel, and, and then my only solution is like to cut everybody off or to put my wall up again. And it's like, if you just had another set of tools or something to go through to help you kind of decompress, you will make a, maybe some better decisions in that way. You know, you'll feel a little bit more or less that it's like this never ending tunnel. Right. And so I think that my one-on-one would be, it never hurts to add more skill sets to what you can help yourself with. Right. And I think that a lot of times the stigma along with mental health is that it, it cripples me, right? Saying that I'm unable to do something, but like, hey, let's get in a space where you're able to learn some things that can help you just feel more in control, right? You kind of feel like things are all over the place. Let me find something that at least I can have this to be my refuge. And like she said, it can it can help us to get to what authentic support looks like for you, right? Maybe, you know, what that looks like varies from person to person, but I think just allowing people to know that it's really about you regaining control, in, in many spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and consistent with the, the theme so far, the validation and the uh, transparency, I do think it's really important to, um, to, to validate and be transparent while um, in sort of help, helper roles. And so for me, what that looks like is uh, and I can be really, I can be so transparent that it can be disarming sometimes. And I do it on purpose, right? So I come in and they might introduce me and I read a bio and there's a doctor and people are like, oh, wow, he has figured it out. And now he has, you know, he's mastered manhood or. Right. But then I'll start with, I am struggling with something right now. I'm having a bad day in this moment, right? I'm, I, I, there's no end to this. You don't. You don't, there's no, like everybody said, there's no magic pills or bullets. Um, that, that transparency and validation is, is extends beyond it's okay to not be okay, but to, to add, I also don't be okay sometimes. It really allows for people, it gives a different level of permission to say, wow, this is, I can, I can, I can now open up. You have modeled what it, what I, with the journey that I have to begin, which is by being honest and reflective and insightful. Um, and you doing it first opens the door that I think is hard to do because we're trained to have some distance between the therapist and the client. And we have you know, this blank slate idea where we don't want to, you know, and you don't want to burden them with your problems. You can do it strategically just to open the door. But I think that validation by saying, this is something that I am currently dealing with, for me in the work, particularly with, with young men, uh, sh- shocks them sometimes. Like, oh, I've, I've never heard an adult be that honest with me mm. before. And then it opens up a new space. Now where there's a new portal for us to have a different conversation through validation and acceptance and connection that just levels the playing field that I think is be, uh, helps with the reducing this, this, this stigma in an individual way. In a collective way, I think that I'm really, uh, I'm really appreciative of 
like the trauma-informed movement where people are asking different questions mm-hmm. instead of saying, going to a school saying what's wrong with the kids, using restorative language to say, you know, what happened to the kid. Um, and I think that in, even in an individual therapy setting, if someone came into an office and said, I'm dealing with this, you would not just look at their individual day and say, tell me about the day and then have a good analysis about how they got there. You start with, tell me how you, what's your story? You, you started today with, what's your story? How did you get from point A to point B? Who was, who was involved? Where did you travel? Who influenced you? And I think in an individual way to understand a, a current conditioning, we have to understand the historical context of that person. And I think mm-hmm. the same thing is true for a collective of people. And so for black people to understand our mental health, you can't just look at Chicago in May of 2020 and understand the trauma of black people, black communities. We have to look at what happened to us as a community to be able to understand how we are in this place. And in, in, in treatment, we think a lot about like dealing with the, the, the symptoms that present themselves. But I have found that when I lead with uh, uh, talking about slavery, talking about uh, 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 trauma currently, the, the, the puppeteers that create the conditions that create the trauma, it, it removes some of the, that shame that we were talking about. Yeah. And I think that breaks some of that stigma. So if there's a stigma because I feel like I'm broken and I can say, no, I can explain to you what happened to our people. And that's why we in this condition and you just a part of that, you just a, a, a victim of conditions that you had nothing to do with. Now it gives you a different level of, of, of easiness to say, okay, well now I can tell you how that manifests for me personally, because I got a framework, I got a context, a narrative to explain why everybody in my neighborhood is so broken. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just your grandmama, your, your people, there's nothing wrong with them. Something happened to us. And exactly. we, didn't, we didn't teach that to you in school because we were too busy doing other stuff or because it gives you too much power to understand the context. But if you start with historical context, start with systems analysis, look at politics, do those things and to frame trauma beyond an individual experience, then I think that removes some of that the stigma and shame and allows people to say, yeah, you're right. It's not my fault. And if it's not my, it is now my responsibility to do something about it. Exactly. Um, but I take away that like, that brokenness individual by explaining historical brokenness in context. And it, it, it does a lot with sort of the stigma that we were talking about. Yeah, I wanna share, um, that's awesome. What was happening also on the comments cause I believe that they really wanna hear from you all, which I love. Um, so I, I put it up here so we could kind of marinate on it but it's more underneath. So Howard says, how do we make sure that we are not affirming te- toxic- toxicity as we validate experiences? Um, he also said that he finds it to be extremely helpful, especially if we equip parents with these tools. So it's transformative for homes and communities. Um, David said he loves this question as well. So I would love for you all to think about that. Like, how do we uh, validate feelings without validating maybe the things that come with it? But he added this angle to it. I love this question. I was thinking the same thing. Although we know we shouldn't be frustrated at the negative outbursts, just as we shouldn't be frustrated as a cancer patient for being upset, I want to know if there's a sensitive way to let them know that they are also hurting others. Um, And then... Yeah, uh, having someone to listen as you give your voice to your feelings can change your life. And I will will end with that because Howard said he loves the point you made. Something happened to us, so I guess just going back to this original question, like how do we really? I know we talked a lot about like validation 
is very important. Like, what? How do you all have seen that in your work, possibly like that validation, but also allowing them to have those real feelings, but not allowing them, I guess, to linger for long as they hurt other people. Um, I mean, I think when you talk about validation and, and you validate feelings and you give people outlets, you also have to talk about what comes with it, right? So just because it happened to you, and I love Dr. Abari, how you brought that up, right? Like, it's not necessarily your fault, right? That like this happened to me or this happened to us or this is my experience or my story, but it is my responsibility to figure out how to heal or how to get through. And I think for me, especially in working with youth, a lot of times, you know, I've learned that in youth work, it is not my job to tell somebody what to do. Because mm -hmm. whether, like, they're not going to do it anymore. My parents told me not to do X, Y, and Z, and I still did X, Y, Z, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not my job. My job is to give you a set of tools and to give you different roads and to show and to teach you what those roads lead to. Now, you may take the road that doesn't necessarily, isn't the greatest, but you'll still figure it out. And I think I had to learn that in youth work because, you know, you want your, your youth and the, the kids you work with to make good decisions. But what's a good decision, right? Um, and so I think to that question, you know, when it comes to, you know, toxicity or things like that, we have to be we have to be okay with uh, with teaching consequence, right? Like this idea that you know, even I think of some of the some of the things that I touch on in my book, and there's you know this idea like it's okay to scream and shout, it's okay to to punch, like it's okay to feel like everything is falling down and you want to punch a wall, right? But there are also consequences that come when you do certain things and we have to be open and honest about those consequences. And I think that's how you stop, you know, like feeding toxicity. It's not saying that, like, it's like, I validate that you feel this way. And, and even for a lot of like, I know spaces right now, like in schools, they have, you know, sensory rooms or, you know, um, calm down rooms where, you know, kids can go in there alone and they can scream and they can pick up things and, do whatever, or even I know now like going, um, I've seen a lot on like television shows, I don't know, like the realness too, but like going and like breaking walls, like these are things you can actually do now, you know, so there are healthy ways that you can take that anger and, and put it out there. But I think we just have to be open about the consequence, like we have to talk about those parts of it um, and let people know if this is the decision that you make, this is the consequence that can come with it. And so I think there are healthy ways to validate and affirm what we're going through and how we feel and not feed toxicity or not make what not make the action from how you feel right. It's okay that I'm hurt or that you made me mad. It's not right for me to go punch you because you made me mad. And if I do punch you, here's the consequence. So maybe how can I have handled that better next time is, is I think the work that needs to be done when we talk about really getting to it. So I just think validating and teaching consequences go hand in hand. We can't allow these things to become a crunch. You know, you tell a kid like a five-year-old, right? Like, oh, you have, you know, bipolar disorder or you have, you know, this is something you're battling with. Now, every day in school, they're, ah, well, I have this, I have this, I have this. Like we have to be, like we were saying Beginning, we have to be um, careful with those labels and how we use them and how we educate so that they aren't becoming like excuses or things like that. But people are really trying to figure out how do I deal with this and how do I get the help that I need and the support that I need to get through this. Um, so I would say that that would be, I think, a good way 
to ensure that like we're not feeding toxicity by validating the experience, but saying the experience is okay. Here are ways that you can deal with it. Now it's your choice to figure out how to deal with it. But if you choose this route, it comes with this you know, reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I would echo that same sentiment that the best thing you give to a, a particular young person isn't the advice, but the, the ability to think critically and to um, think about how one thing leads to another thing. And so if you do that from a place of non-judgment, where you're not putting labels, good, bad, ugly, toxic, whatever it is, healthy, just describing the, the emotion and say, okay, I understand how this led up to this. Because a lot of times they'll feel something, but don't even know. I'm just mad. I don't even know why I'm mad. And so our job is to help them figure out, like, what happened? What happened before? What do you think could be it? Where do you feel that in your body? Just explain it, describe it, and then describe what could happen if you make this decision. What does what this behavior might lead to? And then you give them, like, frameworks and tools. And then they say, okay, I can apply this to this situation. And then they carry that with them. So it becomes not just critical thinking skills, but combining emotional insight with the critical thinking. And then they carry that with them, you know, forever. Because people, particularly young people, get very impulsive, and so they're just not thinking about how this will lead to that. And so you give them that, and you show them how that works, and say, "Well, did that? Was that? Did that work for you? Um, the last time you tried it this way, how did it turn out?" And you just get to think about it. You don't have to judge it. I don't have to explain. You can say you can, and you can keep doing that. You keep bumping your head against the wall all you want. Um, but the last time you told me you did it and it hurt, you wanted to try to find another way. And, you know, let's explore what that other way could look like. I don't have to call it bad, good or nothing. Uh, we just have to describe it, break it down, look at the pieces and then give them that as a tool so they can apply to other situations. Yeah, and I think just quickly to piggyback off of that kind of how we describe things, that's something that I learned from my husband, like right and wrong, good and bad are, are not aren't these labels we can use, especially when you think about youth, because if I grew up in a house, like where I grew up and where you grew up in, Spaces right for me and wrong for you, you know, like are two different things. My household, it wasn't right, it, you know, even the they hit you, you hit them back. That was not what I was taught, but somebody else was taught that. So, if we both grew up and now we're both 20 year olds, you know, we're 20 year olds making decisions about life, I can't necessarily tell someone that what they were taught all their life is wrong, you know, like is wrong. I can teach, like you said, to figure out like what happened when you did that and the consequences with it and if you want to continue to do that right you hit them and then you ended up with a ticket if you were in high school or in jail, you know like that's what happened from it do you want to continue to have experiences but it's not my job to tell you what's right or what's wrong or the label what's good or bad um because we all from very like, bad right. because you're gonna find that you bump into the complexities so if there's two two rules on the table one is respect your elders and then the other one is, is my elders told me to uh, to hit 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 a woman back if they hit me in the face. Now you're saying like, wait, which one do I do? Like, how do I weigh these two rights at the same time? And uh, life, life is just much more simple than a, a list of commandments. So we got to help them have develop develop the tools to be able to understand that and how they, as a person, interact with these evolving rule sets in different contexts. Yeah. There's just so much goodness in this conversation. So I, I feel like we can talk for the rest of the weekend and you know, it's, it's just so good. But I, I, I hate to be the one to cut the conversation. Um, we are a bit over 
and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Um, but I just want to echo again just how blessed I am to be the moderator for for this panel. Um, we heard incredible advice, perspectives, um, thoughts from three outstanding panelists. And I hope everyone who's watching right now on Facebook learned something, picked up something they can they can utilize in the next couple of days or weeks or months or the rest of their lives um, or some food for thought that they can think about and join us next week as we continue our conversation on mental health. Um, Philip, before we end completely, I do want um, both of them to just really share about a little bit of their work and how you can continue um, connection with them because they're both so dope. So whoever wants to go first, uh, I would love for you just to share a little bit about what you're doing now and how people can continue to learn about your work and, and what you're doing and they could just stay connected. So whoever would like to go first. Let me take it. We'll start with Ebony. Go ahead, Ebony. Okay. So uh, once again, I'm Ebony Lewis. I am an author of Dear Black Boy, It's Okay to Cry. Um, that's definitely one way that you can, that's a tool that I wrote that I think is is very helpful. And and I started as my own personal love letter to my family and my boys. Um, and it has come come back in a way that I think is is very powerful in that um, my website is dearblackboycry.com. You can go there. Um, that's how you can get a copy of the book, learn more about me. Um, and also today, I do have a buy one, get one free sale going on right now, um, just in the climate of what's going on. Um, and I had some some support recently that allowed for me to um, let, you know, if you buy one, you get to send one just because of what's going on right now. I really um, want, you know, especially Black boys, but youth, our families to get a hold of it and to start having those conversations, especially right now, because we're in in our homes and we're spending a lot more time together. So I think this is a perfect time um, when there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of different things going on in the world to start having these conversations about mental health, mental wellness um, and those kind of things. So follow me on Facebook, Instagram, all of that good stuff. But if you check out my website at dearblackboycry.com, you can purchase the book and learn more about me. Awesome. Uh, and then we give it some Mr. Um, So I am a program director for an organization called Real Men Charity. So you can website, realmencharitiesinc.org. Um, I have a my own personal website, Um, I do weekly men's healing circles. Right now we're online. It's hip-hop-based, play videos, and talk about man stuff. I have a black male yoga thing that we do right before that, 11.30. So that's every Sunday, Central Time, 11.30 for the yoga, 1 o'clock for the men's group. Um, but also, you know, do individual therapy. And I have the Rice Press program, that uh, curriculum that I do in a couple different places. Uh, you can find out all of that stuff online or Instagram at ocartman1 or Twitter or Facebook or email me or call me or two-way me. I'm easy. <laughs> You're fine. I love it. Um, I just want you all to know people are saying thank you. They love this conversation. They said we need to expand this conversation. Um, so for those who said that, please in the comments of um, myself, 
Philip and Damien, who's been on here kind of moderating as well with the comments. Uh, we will be hosting these conversations every Friday, just different aspects of mental health. And so for those who said to expand, please put in there what you mean by expand. Like what exactly would you feel like you need more insight in? What would you like to hear? Um, we also have been starting um, what's called parent hangouts. And so Philip, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that, but we do those on Wednesdays. And we had our first one on Wednesday, which was really great. And just a space like, like Ebony said earlier, um, we all are going through something right now. And so we had literally moms that are like, I just needed someone that I could say today was rough. <laughs> like can someone hear me and, and hear that out and be able to have a, a, a safe space for that. And so again, put in the comments, uh, anything you want to go directly to Obari, to Ebony, Philip, myself, topics you want to hear, because this is what this space is for. It's about really what people need and what they want to um, get resources for. So um, Philip, maybe you can close us out talking about the parent hangouts and then we'll, we'll end yeah, out. Sure. <clears throat> so um, for the parents hangout, we're on every uh, Wednesday evening at 8 PM and it's just a safe space to build community, to have fun, to de-stress, just like Jeremy was saying, just a place that you can just you know talk about your week, talk about your day, learn from other parents about um, tips or uh, parenting advice or whatnot. Um, but again, safe space to just come hang out. So if you'll have time uh, every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Uh, in to, to sign up, we have, um, we're going to send out reminders on our newsletter. So if you check out our website at clevercharacters.org or check out the Facebook page, Clever Characters, and that can take you to the website. You can sign up for our newsletter and then we'll send out some reminders and also the Zoom link to that parent hangout. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thank you all. Thanks for, so much. Thanks for inviting us and organizing <laughs> all of the things you do, Jerema. Oh my goodness. I cannot keep up. With all <laughs> I, I get exhausted trying to follow what you do. So I appreciate your diligence and commitment to the, to the people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Also, thank you all for watching. Um, again, put any comments you have in the comments and we will get back to you. Take care. Awesome. Bye. Bye. Yeah.